0: author Clive Cussler. The hero Dirk Pitt. Goodness, Mr. Rondheim, I admire virile men. Pitt held up his hand and wiggled his fingers. There is something about flowers that inspires the soul. I admire virile men.
1: Iceberg. Episode 3.
0: Oh, Lord. He be foppin'.
1: As a Canadian, we assume all Americans know each other and live nearby.
0: <laughs> that, is, that is oddly racist and endearing.
1: <laughs> hey, it's our turn. <laughs> <laughs> now that you're here, I can crack my beer of the night.
0: Yes. I, uh, congratulations on your... Oh, Darcy, that's cool.
1: The label wraps all the way around the, around the can, so you can't quite read it. It's dark matter. It's very good.
0: When she told you you were doing irrigation, I was like, oh, her love language is water distribution.
1: <laughs> uh, her love language is plants, uh, although it it's not really love for me, so here's just the plants we have oh, in this in this room. Oh, wow. A lot of rooms look like that. This is north-facing, so this is all the north-facing yeah. plants. Every south-facing window is 10 times worse.
0: How do you keep your kids from just, like, not leaving stuff in the floor at all times?
1: Uh, they don't go in this room. Oh. There's nothing in this room for them. It has our computers and no TV. Our
0: kids just follow us. There's no TV in this room. They'll, they'll follow us and sit in front of us <laughs> and just watch us like little spies.
1: It, they would do that until a couple of years ago, and then I guess they had better stuff to do. Oh,
0: I can't wait for that day.
1: And now we're happy if they talk to us at all during the day.
0: <laughs> wait, you lit- yeah, you, didn't what, you didn't have to you didn't have to dig holes.
1: And I got beer out of it.
0: She's a wonderful woman, you should marry her again.
1: <laughs> well, if she keeps introducing me as her first husband, I will.
0: <laughs> Adorable.
1: <laughs> Technically true, stop telling people
0: that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this cha- This part of the book was bananas.
1: <laughs> I guess we should start with the intro.
0: Oh, you, you go, I did last time. I'll do an explosion noise. <laughs> There there
1: you go. (laughs) I'll put some cool reverb on that. (laughs) Okay. Welcome to Kussler Hussars, the Icelandic crime drama. I am your co-host, Topper. With me is my co-host, Nancy.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Nancy, and I'm here to tell you about books from the 1970s involving Ludfisk. That's why we came (laughs) together tonight.
1: Lutfisk and Hakarl.
0: Yes.
1: So So what chapter are we opening up at? Uh, We are covering chapters six through eight tonight. So we have three different chapters, which are very clearly pulled from three completely different books.
0: (laughs) Okay, start us off with chapter six. I just walked in the house, so I don't have a full set of notes. I just was... Chapter eight was a lot of... uh...
1: (laughs) Oh, good. I was hoping you'd actually read through chapter eight because... That's where I feel opinions start to form. <laughs> At the end of the last episode, uh, Dirk and Dr. Honeywell were flying in the helicopter from the Coast Guard ship that they commandeered to Iceland, because Dirk has to drop off Dr. Honeywell in Reykjavik so he can continue his investigation, and then Dirk's all done. He gets to he gets to go home after all that.
0: Oh, yes, but suddenly he's struck with a violent case of exoticism, and he lands in Iceland, where... According to the audiobook, uh, people have a vaguely Spanish accent.
1: Well, he doesn't so much land in Iceland, (laughs) as he is shot down by a jet with a machine gun on it.
0: Details. Day to day, is he going to bring that up? It's like saying you clean the kitchen and you wipe down the counters. It's a given. It's dark. He (laughs) crashed.
1: That's just how he arrives in countries. That's
0: how he arrives. He never sleeps. He only passes out. He only crash lands or washes up on on shore. It's like some people yeah. never some people never take the highway.
1: Yeah, so chapter 6, uh they're picked up by some local cuz when they wake up on the beach, they're surrounded by children who are like poking them with sticks and stuff. And then Dr. Honeywell dies. One of the kids goes and gets her dad and picks him up in a truck. And we get a brief tour through the Icelandic countryside where Dirk just spends the entire time insulting the locals and calling them cold and heartless looking.
0: Yes, he does. Uh even when he's Dirk Pitt looks like a raisin with legs.
1: And uh, Dirk Pitt was introduced as both warm and cruel in this book. It's like God. He loves you. You're not one to go calling people heartless.
0: It's it's another example of how Dirk is a God. He's, when I went to Catholic school, God loves you. Jesus loves you. But God should be fear. (laughs) God is merciless, much like Dirk.
1: (laughs) God is love. God is fear.
0: He wakes up and he's surrounded by children. His first thought is like, wow, they're not afraid. He's just even Kiel children aren't smiling <laughs> or in fear of their lives whatsoever.
1: <laughs> Papa, another corpse has washed up on the <laughs> beach.
0: Have you ever had to get your parents because somebody was hurt? Oh, yeah. It's a big cashaw. Yeah. I don't care what town you're in. Some guy is bleeding on the street or the beach or igloo, wherever they am in Reykjavik suburbs.
1: I hope all of our listeners, and I really hope you too, go and look up this video on YouTube after this. It's by a comedian uh, named Alistair Beckett King. Every month or so, he releases like a two-minute video, and it's really well-produced, and there is one specifically that is every Icelandic crime show. <laughs> and he plays Hans, all the was parts. It Hans? <laughs> and he plays all the parts. That is one of the first times I've seen my wife like snort beer out her nose because she was laughing so hard. Because my wife has watched every Icelandic crime drama, every Scandinavian crime drama, every Finnish, Norse, Swedish, Dutch, Danish, every crime show that's on Netflix. It's completely ruined our uh, our algorithm. And then she saw this video and went, holy shit, that is every Icelandic crime show. <laughs> so that's what's going to be in my mind for this entire chapter and most of this book.
0: Okay, so maybe Clive was a bit accurate here. <laughs> This prescience has been noted.
1: They're picked up. They're not picked up. They're dropped off, I guess, at the doctor in this little village.
0: The doctor pronounces the other guy dead. In the meantime, Dirk had like the spiritual moment. He closed, while well, in the tropical way there, he closed Dr. Honeybun's eyes, uh, fixed his hair, and was like, oh, I lost. It was I bungled, I, I dropped the football. I fumbled or buggled, whatever those <laughs> men in the costumes do. He's just very sad. And then they get to the, doc- the doctor's house. Honeywell is declared dead, and because gunfire, gunshot wounds were seen, the doctor was like, well, I had to notify the authorities. Two, um, straight-laced, nothing sus- suspicious, eh, I can use words, nothing suspicious about them at all, saunter into the doctor's home, home office, and, um, start to question Pitt.
1: Mm-hmm. But Dirk has gut knowledge, and he immediately realizes something is wrong. Because the cops don't write anything down.
0: And one of them has a uniform that's too short,
1: doesn't quite fit. Yeah, that that's always a dead giveaway. Yeah. So Dirks just starts lying his ass off and says they flew out of Greenland and crashed because they ran out of fuel, and they had a gun for shooting polar bears and it accidentally shot Doctor Honeywell in the elbow, and then they they crashed in the ocean as you do.
0: Yeah, so he just sounds like a psychotic, lonely man who washed up shore with a dead man. Okay. Everybody should place their trust in him. So the cops arrest him.
1: The doctor insists that that he has to finish sewing Dirk up. So they go into the doctor's office to uh, sew up the rest of Dirk's head because he's bleeding this entire time. And that's when Dirk explains, you know, those aren't your local cops. You know, your local sergeant, they they have a little back and forth. Like, your sergeant's dead. That guy's wearing his uniform. These cops are, you know, these fake cops are here to kill me. And he hatches a cunning plan with the doctor. Yes. On like 10 seconds notice.
0: The doctor, how old was Honeywell? I hate to go back, but how old was he?
1: Uh, I think he was described as like but, mid-50s. He had like white and mad scientist hair.
0: Oh, white, yes. Yeah, so they, they put Honeywell in the cooler and they... As soon as the, the doctor gets Dirk behind closed doors, he's like, oh, the cops are imposters. Dirk's like, yes, I know. And he tell, he goes through his omniscience phase where he tells the doctor,
1: you
0: know, <laughs> yes, I noticed the uniform is too short and your guy's dead. They did come up with... They had closed the door, but not completely, so it was a jar to give... Uh, an era of we have nothing to hide, and they overcome their attackers. First, the first one, Dirk, uh, plays the pussy, and it's like, oh, I'm afraid of needles and shots. And the henchman number one has to come in to hold Dirk down to get his stitches, and that's how he's incapacitated. Dirk holds him, grabs him by the wrist. The doctor comes by with ether and a uh, a shot to the neck with a syringe.
1: Something doctors love doing, potentially harming people. I think some do. <laughs> I mean, these were doctors back in the day when doctors said smoking was good for you. So this may have just been par for the course.
0: Oh yeah. Nine out of ten doctors endorse lucky cigarettes.
1: The other cop out in the waiting room is immediately suspicious, so Dirk does what any, you know, red blooded American would do after he's just crashed a helicopter and suffered a massive head wound is he shoots the gun out of his hand.
0: Shoots the guy's thumb clean off. Yeah. Which drives the the second henchman is suicidal. He's like, now just shoot me. Shoot me in the heart. End of my life.
1: This comes up a lot later. Yeah. The henchmen, once they realize they've lost, are immediately suicidal. This is a lot more James Bondy than the last one. The last one was definitely a lot more Indiana Jones. This one is straight up James Bond. My boss will kill me. I need a cyanide pill. All that. But the end of this chapter I really liked. Because when they poke their head out the front door... Because of the sound of the gunshot, the entire village shows up and they're all armed. <laughs> they're like, it's okay, we've killed the cops. And they're like, good. And they all leave.
0: <laughs> Natural reaction, yes.
1: Welcome to Iceland.
0: Everything is settled. The British have to keep a stiff upper lip. The, the Icelandic people are just stiff. Throughout. Lips at all.
1: <laughs> they're very tough.
0: Very, yes, neat. You get a sense sense that the, the doctor was wearing a troll neck, but also had short sleeves for some reason with his thinking. The trust placed in Dirk immediately upon his bizarre arrival. And he, bought, he brought a land war to them. Yeah. You just kick everybody out. If you're the doctor, trust no one. He brought a gang war to your turf.
1: He's a foreigner who <laughs> showed up with a corpse.
0: And people instinctively trust him. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe humans have bad instincts. Look at the world around us. Perhaps we are to blame. <laughs> uh, but the, but Dirk is the violent, lovable cad that he is, and he goes on to his next rendezvous.
1: Yeah, chapter six ends with him in the back of another truck being driven, driven into Reykjavik, and we do the thing that we do so often in Dirk Pitt novels, where he's so tired, so exhausted, but he can't fall asleep because he's just so manly and so tough, and he has to think about everything that's happening, and he's so exhausted, and then he passes out.
0: Yes, his his trauma coma sleeps. We need a term for that. See, that's all he does to sleep. He he doesn't rest and recover.
1: Go to bed. Okay, fine.
0: So, yeah, Dirk doesn't rest and recover. He falls into a coma and then. Uh, what, what rhymes with coma? He comes out uh, captivating. Coma. Coma and captivating. Alona. So, he, he opens his eyes and sees his boss's secretary.
1: Yes. Now we're in chapter seven, which is. A really, lo- like, this has more notes than, like, any three any three chapters I've taken notes for so far.
0: Oh, because it goes off the rails into bizarreness.
1: Yes, this is the parlor scene. This is the first real proper Dirk Pitt, Clyde Custler parlor scene we've gotten. To the point where Sandacker is smoking throughout this, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes, he wakes up, and since he hasn't objectified a woman nearly enough yet, this book.
0: Not at all, really. All the way to chapter seven.
1: James Sandecker's secretary, T.D. Royal.
0: Yes, T.D. Royal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you may be pronouncing it differently than the audio, but... <laughs> but I don't doubt that is what a million men thought when they read this.
0: <laughs> that, was, like, that, is... that was Octopussy. Yeah. He's competing. He knows He knows the brand. He knows what he's trying to do.
1: This is two Bond women in one because she has the Bond the name of T.D. Royal, or however you pronounce it, T.D. Royal, and... She is the government secretary who's hopelessly in love with Dirk Pitt, but Dirk Pitt keeps shooting her down. So she's the money penny. Oh. Wow. She's both Bond women at once.
0: That's why you have to get more points of view. Because if you have her, Hercule Poirot here, you have Miss Lemon, who was no nonsense. And she did not love Hercule Poirot. But yes, she is there watching him because he had a brain, brain injury. and Yes. you know he has to be watched and sleep. For what, I'm not quite sure. I've always heard that as a child. You don't let somebody with a head wound sleep. You have to let them rest. So what do you do? You just hover and make sure they breathe.
1: Yeah, basically, you hover and make sure that they don't suddenly stop breathing.
0: In the event of that, what do you do? Quickly, don't die. Don't die. Don't be dead.
1: <laughs> Usually in hospitals, wakey, wakey. you have the machine that goes bing mm-hmm. to, to keep track of stuff like that. But I guess they didn't have those in the 1970s yeah uh she's described as a long-bodied girl with laughing brown eyes and a red wool dress on a perfectly sculpted body and walked like mercury flowing down a tube and this is before he's said a word
0: which i thought was a brilliant way to write that yeah i liked mercury running down like you you do get a sense of elegance of sexiness but then he says she's just cute mercury running down a tube
1: she wasn't attractive. She wasn't beautiful, but there was a certain fetching charm. Or I forget how. Hey, it goes
0: anyway. Right? She's not sexy. She's not hot. Don't don't be mistaken here. She's not hot.
1: <laughs> and at least he wasn't listing off individual body parts.
0: Go yeah, he uh, held back for minutes.
1: Because we still have one more Bond girl to get to, but that's next, cha- or next no, chapter. Or he goes.
0: He goes. Uh, he lists her measurements for her. Oh, he does. Yeah, I have noticed because... you. I've noticed you, Missy Miss Royale. She
1: bursts into tears because, you know, he never notices her. I could stand next to you in an elevator and you'd never notice me. You don't know anything about me. And he lists her height, her weight, her measurements, where the moles on her body are.
0: Behind her ears. Behind her ears, folks. And her bra size. Yes. Which most women walking around don't know their own bra size. That's a fun fact. I'm sure men don't know. Most women are wearing the wrong size bra. This guy out of nowhere sizes a woman up like... Taylor on Fifth Avenue, and goes, I got you, toots. You're it. a 36C.
1: And she's like, you do love me. And he has to explain, yes, but I'm not going to sleep with my boss's secretary. Oh, fine.
0: Also, she's a professional woman. She works for the government. Yes, this is pathetic.
1: But this is Dirk Pitt. There's only one of him.
0: <laughs> and in the, the great words of Bruno Mars, there's only one carrot, and they all have to have it. <laughs>
1: But now we get the parlor scene, Sandecker busts in, and him and and Pitt just, like, bitch at each other for an entire page. Yes. Possibly justifiable for once, because Pitt wasn't told anything that was going to get him shot down.
0: And and Sandecker explains why he had to keep him in the dark, and what really happened to incinerate all of those men on that ship.
1: I've got so many notes for this, I'm not sure what we have to cover, I'm not sure what's important enough to cover.
0: The probe. It's a probe.
1: Yes, there's a probe. (laughs) So it's not so much that Christian Fury found a huge deposit of zirconium. He invented the machine from the last Marvel movie. Which one?
0: Oh, God. Marvel movies? Um...
1: Ah, crap. Uh, Oh, yeah. Sorry. He invented the probe from Wakanda Forever, where instead of finding uh, vibranium underneath the ocean, it finds all the minerals under the ocean. So he found gold, silver, platinum... But he also found the huge deposit of zirconium. It's the omni probe and it runs on where did I have it? Sultinium 279 uh, the magical element invented for this book.
0: Much respect to that element. Now, how do you <laughs> calibrate this probe? Because aren't you going to be finding mica schist, mica schist, calcium, sodium. Well,
1: they said something about how they radiate a sample with it and then it's like it, it, it's tuned to that material. So I guess you stick some zirconium in it and then it finds the, the zirconium on the seafloor.
0: Oh, so you, you give the you give the probe the missing kiss t-shirt and go, here, it smells like this. Yeah. Go, go get it, boy. Yeah, fine yeah. <laughs> Find Timmy. He's search the wells. Go find all the zirconium. Feed the consumption machine. Feed it.
1: <laughs> and also it wasn't that Fury had a meeting with the Defense Department. I loved this part in particular. Fury had a meeting with the president to give America the probe. Because he knew only America could be trusted with unlimited tactical resources.
0: This is, this is why I was late, and I had to stop at the hospital because I died <laughs> laughing. <laughs>
1: the only government that could be trusted with having complete control over undersea resources was 1975 America.
0: Oh, the pre Reagan years had to be magical. <laughs> what, a, what a sweet summer child Clive Kessler had to be. Oh, that any other... Tonga, Zaire... That island that think that thought um, Elizabeth's husband, Queen Elizabeth's husband, was a god. They're more responsible. Give it to them.
1: <laughs> Give it to the Australians.
0: Some some small island that only has a cargo cargo cult cargo cult, and uh, no means of differ, interfering with the world at large. Give it to them.
1: Yes, but that island would wake up dead the next day, and America would then have the probe. Well, let's be honest here.
0: Oh yeah, I, but we can only eradicate so many countries. How many? I'm an American, so it's a game. It's a I'm willing to gamble with others' lives. As an American, I'm willing to do that.
1: That's how you earn the right to vote every year.
0: Grimly, yes.
1: <clears throat> There's a whole side bit about a fishing trawler uh, with a crew of Arabs in the North Pole that we really don't need. And I think it was just there to flesh out the backstory, but it's uh Sandeckers knowing about the lacks for like the past year, after it after it disappeared. so Sandecker was keeping everybody in the dark.
0: and he knew about the probe from the job
1: and then they explained that sultanium two seven nine Christian Fury was the only person who could who could synthesize it. He never wrote it down because he said the instructions were so simple he, he could keep it in his head. Yes, but it's very unstable and it, and it explodes like a fifty ton bomb, but it fulminates very slowly, like an expanding cloud of incineration. So we know what happened to the boat.
0: Yes. It was fried themselves. They microwaved themselves.
1: Dirk is sad for like two seconds. Oh, but my flamethrower idea.
0: He's not omniscient. That's, that's why he's really <laughs> downtrodden. He thought he psychically solved the whole thing. He's been omniscient up until now. I mean, you got to give him that. What are the next the next chapter has him really leading into the psychic vibe. Yeah. <laughs> and when is he not omniscient? It's Dirk. He's wonderful.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was basically right.
0: Chapter seven, they're discussing Christian Fury's sister. What is she like? They vaguely hatch a plan where Dirk is going to just sweep her off her feet, but they bring the secretary to dinner.
1: Sandecker wants to partner Dirk with the the sister because she's returned from being a missionary in Papua New Guinea to take control of her brother's uh, company.
0: Yes. And they they meet her for dinner, and
1: they meet Kirsty Fury. Christian's twin sister.
0: And I'm I'm sure listeners out there are concerned. Don't worry. She is indeed a hot woman. We've made it to the chapter seven. We finally have a hot woman. I don't know how you held on this long. Any reader
1: would have given up. the 10 out of 10 smoke show baddie, as they would say on Kill James Bond.
0: <laughs> yes. She is tan and blonde. How could that happen? And tall. And she has light eyes with flares.
1: Dirk meets up with Sandecker and Miss Royal at some restaurant. I didn't entirely catch where they were. There's a but...
0: buffet with a lot of cod.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's all the Icelandic delicacies, so fish?
0: Yes, fish with a side of fish, with a side of woodfisk.
1: And the line is dropped that a lot of people had never even heard of Kirsty Fury until she was named in Christian's will as the sole beneficiary, and then she showed up uh, from Papua New Guinea and ran the company like she built it herself. So nothing suspicious there.
0: Nothing at all. Not... The probate time is the biggest red flag. It takes like a year to get that paperwork done. Klein never had a loved one die. This guy never was in charge of paperwork. It leads me to believe he didn't buy his own shoes.
1: <laughs>
0: this is a man who's had things taken care of by women in his life. But I like to have the book near age to, to gaze upon the, the iceberg. All right. Um,
1: I like how Sandecker's plan, because he knows Dirk, is to basically put Dirk with Kirsty and hope that he'll do his dirty things. They'll learn everything they need to learn. So Dirk calls her this fury broad twice, and they talk back and forth about how he's picky when it comes to chasing skirts.
0: I do love the term broad. <laughs> it's, it's very just, of its time. It's very of its time, but it's always like if somebody's referring to a broad, it's because they're kind of adversarial. It's never like, oh, she's a nice broad. It's always like that mouthy broad.
1: Yeah, that Dirk is... Dirk is really defensive like he's pre-angry about being stuck with Kirsty Fury. This is every cop show where they give the main character a new partner. He's like, "I'm not going to like this partner. He's not like my old partner." And I should point out Al is so far still not in this book. I don't honestly don't remember if he shows up. So, Al has been recast as Kirsty Fury and the main character is pissed.
0: Do you think um Dirk has to have al nearby to temper his misogyny or it's never no mind this it's just there it's it's his beating heart it's the blood in his veins it can't be tempered
1: i think he only has one mode but he likes when he can have al there to like nod at and a wink and go right
0: yeah maybe some a meatball
1: and al goes yeah <laughs> al just says something reassuring and non-committal and Dirk goes off chasing skirts
0: we meet the sister who's a genius with a husky voice a sultry deep voice Everything she does is sexy.
1: Very tall, very blonde, picturesque perfection, wearing purple velvet, which is hard to pull off, I would imagine.
0: I've been watching so many 70s television. Everything was... First, everything was a fire hazard. I'm surprised anybody's alive. There was carpeting everywhere. There was carpeting in hair salons. (laughs) Yeah. I was watching a... I didn't think that was true. I saw it on uh, a television show, so I went to watch a uh, public service announcement for barbershops and hair salons from the 70s. And by God, they had shag carpeting. Like, how do you sweep that? Oh, how do people get their hair cut? It goes into the shag carpeting, disappears forever. Maybe that's brilliant. <laughs>
1: My wife has very few phobias. Carpet in bathrooms is one of them.
0: Oh, I see. You've, <laughs> you've, you've been shopping for a house before.
1: <laughs> you know when a cat comes around a corner and like sees a dog and the cat suddenly has to get really big and look extra tough? <laughs> and that's and what all and gets all hunched up. If you say
0: carpeted bathroom, my wife does that. <laughs> she must have been a realtor in a previous life. <laughs> but yeah, those words. Oof. So yes, everybody was wearing lots of lots of velvet, lots of corduroys, so much layering. There was so much fabric in the 70s. We, it's it really is time travel reading this book. You're going to a different land. The past is a foreign land. And when you read the, the descriptions of the color and the clothes these, these people wore, it sounds like the circus has come to town. Nobody dresses like this. Nobody wears a green suit in a white turtleneck. That's what the Riddler wears, not a human being. But no, it's Dirk walks around like a 1970s male. And that was a very particular thing. That was a particular time of people wearing lots of hair, lots of fabric, lots of cigarettes.
1: Right before she shows up, there's a moment where I'm not sure if well I was about to call him Dirk Dirk Pitt if Clive Cussler has the sort of self-awareness of what he's doing in this scene because Dirk and Sandecker are basically going back and forth about chasing skirts, how to catch a woman and how to bed a woman
0: with the secretary sitting right there
1: man talk, yeah and the secretary is looking, like Clive points out the secretary is looking back and forth being horrified
0: because it's horrifying
1: so he has <laughs> enough self-awareness to write the secretary being horrified by boys being boys. So you have to wonder if he's taking it a little too far on purpose? Well, yes. Or if it was an editor's note, the secretary wouldn't laugh at that joke. The secretary would be filing a lawsuit <laughs> at that joke. Clive?
0: Well, not in the 70s, she wouldn't.
1: I'll have her be angry. How's that?
0: He would will, he will just say, hey, Tuts, stop your whining. The men are talking, and he'd slap her on the bum and send her on her way with some extra cigarettes.
1: Yeah, because I have the note written down, they're sexist to her until she shuts up.
0: But yes, that's how it works.
1: <laughs> but everybody in the restaurant is staring at Kirsty when she walks in. First, it's all the men, because Pitt turned, and so did every other male face in the establishment. And then later on, all the women were studying her with instinctive envy.
0: Yes. I have seen supermodels walk down the street, when you see like a, a really famous person or somebody amazingly beautiful, you just stare. It's a human reaction. You just stare. You don't have to stare with envy or hate in your heart. They're pretty. I'm not. Clive is like, oh, girls be hating. They have to. <laughs> Dirk's a hoe.
1: That bitch.
0: He, <laughs> yes. It's always, <laughs> it's weaponized. Every But the the person being slut shamed here is Dirk. And he's like, no, I you can't send me to chase skirts. I chase the skirts I want to chase. And his boss is like, no, you're kind of a slut. Get out there. Beautiful woman comes in. They all stare. Dirk, deep in his soul, is probably like...
1: Dirk's like, okay, fine, I'll do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and probably a little upset she's getting the attention. Really, he's, at his heart, is a drama queen. So he wants to have all eyes on him, I think, in his soul. I think <laughs> the more we read into these books, the more he just wants to be loved and acknowledged for the special, special boy he is.
1: And they flirt like two pages.
0: Yes. And they he makes a dig about... Her flashing eyes. She has lines in her eyes, just like he does. They have matching eyes. And the secretary girl, uh, Titty Galore, <laughs> Titty Royale, uh, sure. is like, "What do you mean your her, your eyes are green? Hers are are violet. They're completely different." And you want to say like, "No, nah, bitch. They're both orbs that you see out of. They're gooey. They're slimy. Some have different colors, but it's 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 not as deep as that." He's like, "No. There's flecks of color here, and she has them there. So we're psychically linked." And he leans <laughs> in and he really hammers home the flirtatiousness and then the foppishness. And she reveals she has to she has to go. Lovely meeting you, but you know, my fiancé fiance's in town and this throws a spanner into the works.
1: There's uh one lie that we have to cover first. So there's a bit of well, there's a lot of talk about the food, and they have Dirk eating mm-hmm. the Hakarl, which is the cured shark. Yes. Which, by the way, tastes like soap.
0: I've had it it's just like Oh, this is unpleasant. It's just like you're not going to spit it out at a party. You're not going to be like, "Oh, it tastes gross." It's you're you're not going to seek it out. It's
1: highly odd, but they have him like it's hard for him to talk because he's eating so much of it at one point. But lying right now in order to trap the other person, fashion which they they really set up so you can see a mile away. He talks about how he prefers the Malaysian version, which is cured in a seaweed called echidna. And that doesn't show up for, like, ten chapters, because he just drops this line. And they figure I should let, let the fans know now.
0: Yes, and I thought an echidna was a small a small coastal mammal.
1: Yes, an echidna is like a porcupine.
0: And they're adorable.
1: Yeah. It's not seaweed.
0: But it could be delicious, don't
1: know. Mm. They bounce through two hours of eating, and yes, she has to go because of her fiancé.
0: And Sandecker loses his shit.
1: And Dirk immediately thinks, the competition.
0: Yes. So he slides... If we're doing a baseball thing, he slides into home right straight onto the other team. So he looks like he's not—he's not a competitor. He's on Team Fop, feminine. Oh yeah, and fancy.
1: Oscar Rondheim shows up, and he's described like almost the same way that Pitt is described. He's big, he's warm, he's friendly, but his—you know—his eyes are hard, and he could turn mean in an instant. And like, so we basically have Pitt 2.0.
0: Yes, except this man is famous, because he's a famous cannery man.
1: (laughs) Isn't he the one who owns an international fleet of fishing ships and canneries? Blue boats with a red flag and an albatross? And they have to drop the line that the Rondheim fleet carries as much respect in fishing circles as the Nazi swastika.
0: Yes, well...
1: Because apparently these are the asshole fishermen.
0: (laughs) Yes, they they have their dyed red nets that they drop into forbidden waters, and he's... I thought the new guy, I'm sorry, I'm all out of sorts today. Just driving at night makes me bananas.
1: Uh, (laughs) Oscar?
0: Yes, Oscar is a little bit taller than Dirk.
1: Yeah, probably. He's like big and physically imposing. He's a big scary man.
0: Yes, and Dirk decides to go and show his belly and be like, I'm not after your broad. I, I like to paint seasides, seascapes, and fancy things.
1: He shakes Dirk's hand, and Dirk... Immediately goes so limp that Oscar pulls his hand back. And from this moment on, Dirk is flamingly gay. Yes. With some choice lines we're going to get, which I might have to bleep out, but...
0: And, and Oscar's like, oh, has he seen me on Canary Weekly? Is he, is he <laughs> going to fanboy over me now?
1: He says he admires virile men. This is Dirk, by the way. He taps his lips femininely and says he'll paint some watercolors for for their offices, and Dirk only asks to borrow a boat so he can paint the Icelandic coastline. Yeah, there's this really weird back and forth where Dirk instantly goes full six out of six on the Kinsey scale when Oscar's around, and then goes back to being Dirk as soon as Oscar and Kirstie leave.
0: Which is a solid plan. Don't know how many boyfriends I had in high school who are like, you know, just say you're gay, and then my <laughs> parents will leave, and we could hang out together after they leave. But they won't leave unless you say you're gay. I mean,
1: yeah, but (laughs) (laughs) this is just, it's odd and it kind of came out of nowhere. And Sandecker yells at him for the goddamn homo act.
0: Oh my God, Sandecker loses his shit. He almost punches him.
1: Yeah. How dare you bring that gayness into my vicinity?
0: Yeah, words were used. People, words were used that I'm not saying. I'm not even running for office in the future at all because I have skeletons in my closet. And I'm not saying the words that were used by Sandecker.
1: Yeah, and Pitt says there are times and being underestimated is an advantage. And Rondheim has every reason to think I'm a... And I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that word either. No, don't,
0: don't. You can be cancelled and you have a big boy job. Don't do that.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So for the rest of the book, in order to fool Oscar, who, one, they just met, and two, have no reason to think anything ill of...
0: None, None at all. He's just... Yeah.
1: Although they do point out that if uh, Fury Mining and uh, Rondheim Fisheries joined forces, which they'll do if they get married, that would be like the biggest, most powerful corporation in the North Atlantic, be more powerful than the Icelandic government.
0: It, it would almost be like Amazon.
1: And we're reminded that T.D. is still in this book. Oh, yes. When she then explains for a couple of pages how Kirsty was terrified
0: Yes, but Dirk picks up on that and he goes to Sandecker and he says, huh, huh, whoop, I saw something. Miss Titty, did you see it? And she goes, yes, she was terrified. Did you see the way he held her neck? Sandecker's like, like you're right. So why wouldn't you stop him from squeezing her neck if you saw him squeezing her neck? It wasn't a loving gesture. You saw, she's going to be bruised. That's when Dirk further reveals his plans on like show your weak side, belly up first. Uh, Vulnerability is how we're going to get in. By grubbing a free dayboat.
1: Yes. And Sandecker asks, what do we have to borrow a boat for? Which I mean is a good point because he is the director of the National Underwater and Marine Agency and I'm sure they could get a boat.
0: And as we've established, they're friends with the Coast Guard. serving through.
1: But in literary fashion, you know, they would Speed of plot. That wouldn't be interesting. So now Dirk has arranged to be on a boat.
0: Yes. And uh, Sandecker is with him. And the secretary, Miss Titty Boreal, who I do love her. She's great. She has low self-esteem, and she needs to work on herself. But uh, she's game for adventure.
1: Because they are going to go hunting for the black plane that Dirk chopped down.
0: Yes, and they need a special navigational tool, or special gizmo, that the first boat, which was very pretty, and... Ms. Royal wanted to go on the first boat with the Oh,
1: right, right, yeah. They're at Pier 12 and they're looking at all the boats that Fury Mining owns. And yeah, Dirk, in Chapter 9 now, it's the next day, Dirk is wearing, like, basically I'm picturing a tiny, skin-tight sailor outfit. But tighter. Like, he's, (laughs) he's described as being even more flaming than the night before, and he's swishing. There's a lot of swishing. He's
0: a walking pride parade. Before there were parades.
1: Happy June, everyone i have curious. no idea when this is coming out
0: <laughs>
1: i am behind on putting episodes together so if you don't hear this until christmas that's my fault
0: but i still owe you a an edited version of the episode, but I, I am well behind too the gayness with which he dressed Which store do you go to <laughs> is there like oh i suddenly have to be very gay and over the top macy's <laughs> no
1: Now, I've been to Iceland, but that that was in 2015. So I've been to Iceland 40 years after this book. And I would say there's plenty of places you can go in Iceland to get this kind of outfit.
0: But we've already established the people there are gray, solemn people, stoic in nature. Why do they have any stores for colors?
1: That's just in the villages. Like Downtown Reykjavik is actually pretty great. Uh, I took lots of notes while I was there, so every day I would allow myself on the internet only for a little bit at the end, and I would just punch all the notes into Facebook. The the Icelanders are interesting people. Uh, every day there is something in there about how their bangs are amazing. They have fabulous <laughs> hair. Uh, it, it, if you have a big enough coat, you can just wear lingerie. Oh, so th- there were definitely people wearing like the big fur coat and like basically bikini underneath. Okay, one of the Best things I ever saw was a guy pulled up to a gas station there in a Porsche, got out, went in, came out eating a taco, and got in the Porsche and left. Oh. Because gas station tacos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're a brave bunch. I, sh- I could see how.
1: They are a wonderful, strange people. I love them so much.
0: Well, you should work for the Chamber of Commerce and not Clive Custler. He's already established they're a gray, stoic people. <laughs> they don't even blink at death.
1: Yeah, we don't really get like the downtown Reykjavik vibe.
0: No, we're not getting the the glossy Madison Avenue Reykjavik that you're promising. Yeah. We're we have damn near communist right? communist Iceland. There's no color. Somehow though, he shops at Gays R Us, yes. comes up poppin'. <laughs> Extra foppish. It's 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 implied, but there's a rainbow behind him on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the, the secretary's there, too. She's got to do the painting. And he promised to seascape.
1: Yeah, because Dirk doesn't know how to paint. He just, dr- he just dragged uh, her into this adventure.
0: And though they sell lots of things in Reykjavik, like cl- colorful clothing and cigarettes and cigars, they don't sell paintings. So they had to drag the American <laughs> <laughs> secretary along on this ruse. I'm sure she's combat-hardened and battle-trained.
1: Oh, God, yes. At this point, it's book two, and we've just met her. I'm sure she's practically marine by this point.
0: That is the chap- that's the the end of chapter eight.
1: Honestly, I, I didn't think we'd get past this tonight, and we're almost at the one-hour mark, so we're probably...
0: The the comedian you told me about, Alistair Beckett King, that sounds like a, a prized racehorse or a very fancy breed of dog.
1: <laughs> he has amazing red hair, so I'm going to go fancy breed of dog.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> you navigated this one very well by not getting yourself canceled, because goddamn chapter eight. Holy <laughs>
1: I figure I can see it. Homo, they use that one on like, yeah, you know, sitcoms nowadays, and I mean it with all love. Yes. That was a direct quote from a 1975 lifelong naval man.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. We're reading the words as written, and we understand they're a problem. Uh, I'm not
1: going to read the other ones.
0: No, no, but Sandecker, <laughs> crazy homophobe out of nowhere. He's got yeah. issues. You see, he was upset with Dirk with even just like bringing up the character.
1: Yeah, he seemed a bit more than just like surprised and how dare you not clear this plan with me. He was viscerally upset.
0: So we have entered the, the domain of the way men think that's baffling to me. Being angry with a woman you haven't seen yet. I've seen <laughs> that. I've observed that.
1: Have you been on Twitter?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so very well done. And hating the gays for no reason. Yeah. That growing up, men used to be like, no, 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 you f word you that if they're not if machismo is the end goal if getting the the broad the dame the toots is the end goal why hate gay men you should embrace them this has never made sense
1: is it I mean in the in the nineteen seventies uh, they would just be called confirmed bachelors and then you would change the subject
0: oh yes the confirmed bachelors men who love their mother men who were fond of their mother and uh, there what was, what was another term. Mm-hmm.
1: Friends of Dorothy,
0: oh yes, Friends of Dorothy, <laughs> and that was for Dorothy Parker. I thought that was for because she was a big New York fixture and writer and poet, and she was in the Algonquin Round Table. Dorothy Parker, oh, okay. But when I've heard Friends of Dorothy, I thought it was for Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz.
1: Yeah, me too. That was my first thought.
0: Dorothy Parker. She wrote a story called The Lottery. It's very good, very short.
1: The term was likely based on the according to the wiki. Or the term was likely based on the character of Dorothy Gale in the oh, Wizard of Oz oh. series. Actress Judy Garland, predating the Wizard of Oz origins, is New York's celebrated humorist and critic and defender of human rights, Dorothy Parker, in the 1920s and 30s, whose uh, social circles included gay men. Thank so you. no one knows. Okay, maybe it's both.
0: It's like um, it's it's like the Reuben sandwich. Nobody knows where it came from. We think some guy <laughs> named Reuben.
1: Okay, and there's an entire section here called Misunderstanding, and it's very short, and I think I can read the whole thing here. Okay, go for it. In the late 1970s, the Naval Investigative Services was investigating homosexuality in the Chicago area, because I guess the Navy has purview over Chicago. Aegis discovered that gay men referred to themselves as friends of Dorothy. Unaware of this term, the NIS believed there actually was a woman named Dorothy at the center at the center of a massive ring of homosexual military personnel, So they launched an enormous <laughs> hunt for the elusive Dorothy, hoping to find her
0: <laughs> to find what and
1: convince her to reveal the names of all the gay servicemen in the Navy. First, how has that movie not been made? I would watch that
0: absolutely. My God, the Taffer, you have done the impossible. Men have been exploring. <laughs> The oceans for travel to foreign lands have made spaceships to delve out into the. You have uncovered a mystery (laughs) that is unlike any other.
1: Who was Dorothy? It makes
0: no sense. Who was Dorothy? Why would the government think that a bunch of gay men have one one woman in common?
1: Well, that was that was their boss. That that was.
0: (laughs) Oh, like they they went to the union meeting, so they were giving marching orders.
1: I believe she was because they were feminine
0: men, so they must have a feminine boss.
1: I believe she was the manager of gay at that time.
0: Oh, the department, the the Ministry of Manliness, yes, yes, Mi- Department of Gay,
1: possibly a Russian spy. I mean, it was the seventies.
0: Yes, but the oh, 30s commission. Goodness.
1: This is such a <laughs> this is such a
0: weird article. <laughs> Didn't it have anyway a, a future president was on that committee to look for the gays of Roosevelt.
1: Oh God, probably
0: the senator that drank himself, McCarthy. <laughs> Senator McCarthy was looking, he was a very closeted, deeply troubled man, and him and uh, J. Edgar Hoover would party down, and then, you know, like suspected communist people of our, or blacklist liquorers. And know, uh, And
1: hey. there was a
0: third guy who was uh, Richard Cohen, who was Donald Trump's best friend.
1: Oh, who was on the- Roy Cohen.
0: Yes. How do you know American history better than me?
1: Uh, Roy Cohn had a Behind the Bastards, which was one of the most uh, surreal and anger-inducing things I've ever heard in my entire life. Oh, yes. So here was, like, famously, publicly, one of the gayest men in America going after gay men and working his ass off to make homosexuality illegal in the country and kill as many gay men as as he could. And everyone knew he was gay.
0: It wasn't a secret. People... Your aunt didn't just live with her best friend until they died. Like, your mom knew what was up. What was explained to children wasn't the the way the world was. And people think that, oh, yesteryear, they didn't know anything about sex or sexuality. No, everybody knew. This, they, these were open secrets.
1: Yeah, he was trying to keep AIDS research from happening, but at the same time, he was part of the trials for AZT, the anti-HIV Yes, he did. Drug.
0: He, he died of AIDS, right?
1: He died of AIDS. Uh, he does have a square on the AIDS memorial quilt, which just says Roy Cohn, bully, coward, victim. Which was one of the harshest things I'd ever heard on that Behind the Bastards episode. And usually they make fun of people in the darkest and bleakest of situations, but everybody was just kind of floored at the end of that episode. That was a rough oh, listen.
0: He, oh, He was such a bastard. And the ripples are still felt today. Yeah. Sometimes you wish you could just dig somebody up and kill them all over again. And not because he's gay, but because he's an asshole.
1: <laughs> yes. Here's somebody who deserved it.
0: <laughs> who deserved yes.
1: every bad thing that ever happened to them and more. Not a lot of people you can point to who really deserve that.
0: Oh. It's just just that guy and apparently the secretary to do who has to sit there and watch the love of real life <laughs> pretend to be a gay man. <laughs> In the seventies, all of the horror.
1: While well, both her bosses basically tell her to shut up and stop being so womanly.
0: Yes, but she also has to be reminded she's not hot. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, look at the hot lady coming in the restaurant.
1: In this chapter, now that she's wearing a bikini, Dirk has to point out, okay, she's a little hot, but you have to pretend she's not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like a sister.
1: Yes. Just like Money Penny.
0: All right, I'm going to leave you. I'm sorry, I stumbled over my words a lot today. Night driving freaks me out.
1: Oh, no problem. Well, you made it. Uh, we ran into the part where I didn't even have notes. So excellent. And I think we did pretty good.
0: We did. This has been Custler Hustlers. Your hosts have been Topper and Nancy. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Custler Hustlers.